When we look around us, it's easy to think everyone else is doing fine and has a picture-perfect life. It's easy to feel like your peers are better than you, more successful, having a better time. But you'd be surprised. In today's stressful day-to-day, in particular in graduate school, more people than you imagine are struggling with anxiety and depression. In part one of this week's episode of Papa PhD, Susanna Harris will be sharing with you her personal experience dealing with depression during her PhD and the lessons this experience has brought her. Although I felt like I didn't have much to offer, I did have skills, I did have experiences that other people could learn from, and and that made me feel really good. Uh, And during that winter, and actually in January, February, some, some new literature came out that really opened up a new opportunity where I could take those really bad experiences that I had and and hopefully help people in a way that I wish that I had been supported. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. This week, we're talking with Susanna Harris. Susanna is a PhD student and now PhD, freshly minted, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where she studies how different types of bacteria stick to the roots of plants. Susanna started PhD Balance to empower academics during and after grad school with a special focus on supporting academics' mental health. Susanna can be found on Instagram and Twitter at, at Susanna L. Harris, while PhD Balance can be found at, at PhD underscore balance and at www.phdbalance.com. Susanna, I'm over the moon happy to have you on Papa PhD. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, David. It's so cool to be here. And... Um... You know, I'm really, it's a, it's a great reminder of how the internet can bring people together, especially in these times where it's, it's hard to have real human connections. It's very, very true. And uh, it's, it's easy to see on social media now how everyone is connecting. I've, I've had more contact with family that's far away in Europe these days than like in the last five years. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It's a silver lining, let's say, of what's happening around us with this pandemic. So, Susanna, I presented you in a, in a you know, short and, uh, and sweet paragraph here, but I'd like you to present yourself or talk a little bit more about yourself and how you came into science and eventually into doing a PhD uh, and to share uh, more in detail all of that journey with uh, the audience. So can you tell us a little bit more about how Susanna Harris became Susanna Harris PhD? I love that question. Uh, I I think I have a very similar background to a lot of folks where I was interested in science growing up, uh, was really encouraged by my parents and my teachers to to continually ask questions and just sort of explore the things around me. And it was high school where I I had a class or, or two where we talked about bacteria and viruses. And I just thought, you know, that's the coolest thing that I have ever heard about that you know, this is one of those things that is all around us, but I've never had the abilities to ask the questions about this topic. And um, so I went to undergrad at the University of Iowa up in Iowa City. 
mostly because they had a microbiology program and they also had a, a really good Spanish language program. And I wanted, I ended up getting uh, a minor actually in Spanish. But the microbiology program, I just wanted to learn as much as I could. And, and going in, I didn't even know that I could be a scientist as a job. I didn't really have any idea of what a PhD looked like. It turns out that I'm um, the first PhD in my family uh, on, on either side. And uh, depending on how you qualify it, the, the first doctor of any kind on either okay. side. So it wasn't something that was ever really an option until I, I got into a lab and started learning about bacteria and how complex they are. And, you know, they're not just a little bag of chemicals. They have all these amazing behaviors and learning about them was sort of like learning the basis of biology, which had mm. always captured my attention. Uh, so that's how I decided, you know, I love being in the lab. I love taking the science classes. And I, I saw a PhD as uh you know, a really clear next step that would allow mm -hmm. me to, to keep learning. Um, at my university, we get paid a stipend. So I was going to okay. get paid to do this PhD. It was sort of the ideal situation. Uh, and so I came into the PhD with uh, a lot of kind of dreams about how it would look to, to really be a PhD student and be mm -hmm. able to direct some of my own research. Uh, and choose from these labs. And, you know, that was almost six years ago okay. when I started. And, and I think my, my perspective about PhD life uh, and about science culture in general has, has certainly changed over the years. Okay. And so now, so you've just had, like we, we mentioned before, your, uh, uh, your private defense. So let's say you're kind of closing the chapter, the PhD chapter right now, but uh, it's, it's a, a large book. If, if this is a chapter, the book is, you know, it's six years, like you said, it's a whole chunk of your life. <laughs> and um, my question to you is, you know, maybe now that, that you've had this turning point of, of defending and, and being told, no, you're good to go. Are you in a position where you can kind of look back from like, the top of the mountain and look at those six years? And um, for, for the sake of, of the listeners out there who are still, you know, working towards that objective, uh, think of, you know, two or three turning points or, uh, or important principles that, that helped you drive yourself to, to push and to finish and to, uh, and to now defend. I think I actually have a, a really interesting turning point, probably in my fourth year. I believe that's when it was. And, you know, I know, I know in a little bit, we'll go back to instead of my fourth year, my third year, which was when I was really struggling. But right around the end of my fourth year, I was still, I was looking at what I had done. I was looking at, you know, I, I, my passion is really more of science communication and, and supporting other graduate students. And I was questioning, um, you know, was staying in a PhD going to be helpful to me? Was I just, was this kind of a sunk cost fallacy of I'd already spent so much time, mm -hmm. I guess I'll stay here forever. And I was, I was really questioning that. And I felt like at any time the university, the department was going to come to me and say, you're not doing enough. We need you to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was really kind of paralyzing to me because I felt like every move some people were saying, do what you need to do to be successful or do what you want to do, make the system work for you. Other people were saying, 
you know, well, that's not what you should be doing. And what makes you successful isn't what you think it is. Uh, and I, I spoke with one of, she was a postdoc in, in the Dangle Lab at the time. And I just said, you know, I'm, I'm really considering leaving. Uh, and, and I said, part of that reason is that I'm, I'm afraid they're going to kick me out if I mm-hmm. keep doing what I want to do. And she said, so let them cook, kick you out. You know, you're already at the point of leaving. Don't leave. Make, do what you want. Do what you think success looks like. Get through. And if they want you to leave, make them put in the effort to get rid of you. Uh, don't, don't make their job easier. And don't let the voices in your head, the things that you're saying to yourself, get in your way. Because, you know, you're busy enough without being your worst critic. And that really changed how these last couple of years have gone, where I do still feel a lot of guilt that I'm not kind of the cookie cutter PhD student that um, I've had a couple of publications, but that bench work isn't really my strongest suit. Uh, I, I feel I definitely feel bad about that. But I try to keep it in mind that that's not what I want to do, ultimately. And if anyone else has a problem with that, then it's fine. But they have to be the ones to come and say it to me. It's a very, very important point. And you said two things that are, to me, very important. There's the negative self-talk that comes from within that uh, can be crippling at times, uh, depending depending on your personality and and how you know how you're you're formatted inside. But then there's the negative talk from outside, and uh, you're so you're saying that uh, this person who who for sure uh, I think with just that conversation must have given you a, a kind of a sigh of relief of okay you know what she's right or he's right uh but i think this person was very right with in in saying that don't give too much weight to uh first something that you're estimating that people are going to do it's not even real yet no one has said you you're you're leaving but in a sense trust your your gut feeling and trust in the objectives you're setting for yourself in your life did you have, apart from from this colleague, other people that you resorted to, or other, uh, you know, sounding boards that you know that that you could discuss these, these ideas with, and that helped you uh, bring down the negative talk and and uh, keep more faith, let's say, in your own personal objectives. Definitely, my my therapist. Uh, so I see a psychologist probably every other week or so. If if I'm doing well, maybe a little bit less, or if I'm having a particularly difficult time, I'll, I'll speak with her every week. But it was great to have her on my team, and I say on my team because everyone else you're working with, including your advisor, your colleagues, um, everyone else has their own agenda. Everyone else has what they want to get out of things. They have their own fears and self doubts. And a lot of times when people say, uh, Oh, you should be doing this. You know, you should be at the bench more. You should be updating your resume. You should be doing this. And if you listen to everything you would need 48 hours in every single day. (laughs) Um, and so that was, that was one thing that I learned of, no matter what you're doing, it will never be enough. I know that's a very nihilistic way to say it, but it's sort of comforting to me of, okay, you're never going to get to the place where you're working hard enough that you're working long enough to fulfill the shoulds. Mm -hmm. Uh, But rather, the only thing you can really do is work to make yourself uh, to fulfill your own goals to you know, protect yourself and also to build the strength to ignore those feelings. Um, 
And my therapist, you know, she is trained to not reflect her own concerns onto me. And, and she is there specifically to help me succeed in the ways that I want to. And so she was really great about when I was having issues with, um, you know, different deadlines, different, I, I just call them shoulds, because that's probably my <laughs> one of my flaws that I, I continually work on. Uh, but she would always challenge me when I said, well, you know, I really should be doing this or uh, whatever. She would say, is it something that you want to do? Is it something that you need to do? Where is this coming from? And helped me remember that I was in grad school because I wanted to be a better scientist, because I wanted to get a degree, because I wanted to have doors open to me. Are these things that I'm feeling bad about, are they essential to getting to those points? And mm -hmm. if not, it's not my duty to force myself to do them. I think it's a very interesting point. And considering that uh, only a small percentage of people who go through grad school end up being PIs and having their labs, you know, it doesn't mean that only 10% of of candidates should go to a PhD. It means that the other 90% should be able to be fulfilled in all other aspects of their personality, of their creativity, etc., etc., etc. And this means that, you know, the, the, the candidates run a kind of a gamut of, okay, I'm actually the super... Uh, stellar PhD, then postdoc, then then I get my lab. But then there's a whole gamut of different types of personalities, types of attitudes towards uh, work. People who work better, you know, at, in late hours or or the early birds. There's, there's the whole gamut, and and I think that kind of goes to goes uh, hand in hand with what you're saying. But more specifically, in the way you said it, listen to what you really like to do in life and 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 i think one one thing that you said in the beginning was you had this curiosity to learn and to, to be a scientist but also you you have you want to um again you talked about science communication you also want to bring science to other people that's the feeling that i get and in in your own terms in your own way and I think that's very enriching to the scientific community. If everyone was just in lab coats, in labs, pipetting, I think society would lose uh, would lose uh, a big chunk of its uh, color and of uh, you know people contributing in in different ways to to everyone learning and to everyone actually having access to information, which is sometimes very difficult to understand if it's not uh, well presented. You know, it's very interesting to me to see how logical and how careful scientists are in thinking about or discussing or even, you know, evaluating their own specific research. But then a lot of the things that we think outside of it are, are very dogmatic. They're very instilled in us in what everyone else has said. And so they'll think, say things like, you know, a scientist's job is to produce data. A scientist's job is to write research manuscripts mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's challenged nearly enough. Uh, and, and in terms of this idea of science outreach being important, I think a lot of people say that. Uh, but I actually think some form of science outreach should be required. I don't think that every scientist should be speaking to the public or should be writing to the public. Maybe some scientists should reach out to other scientists. Maybe some scientists, you know, I think the peer review process actually should count in that. But the reality is that the government pays for my research. Um, and so society pays for my research. And I, I think it's negligent to not fulfill that, that part of 
science is for the public. Uh, we are doing our best to find the truth. And there's really no reason of, of learning new things, finding the truth, if no one else hears about them. Otherwise, it's just a completely selfish kind of fulfillment. And it leaves the terrain uh, ripe for fake news and uh, uh, and disinformation versus if scientists are out there, those who are inclined towards sharing and, and communicating, if they're out there, you know, telling the information how it is, we, it kind of cuts that noise uh, in a way. And uh, no, I, I agree completely. So now just, just to go back a little bit to to uh, your the timeline of your PhD, uh, and you kind of alluded to it uh, before a little bit. On your third year, you said you hit uh, you hit a, a wall of some sort. Can you talk a little about that of uh, obstacles and uh, that that you might have uh, faced during a certain part of your PhD? I, I think a lot of it started um, at the end of my second year, and I guess when I say started, it, it sort of started building rather. So all of this is is wrapped around. Uh, my personal struggles with mental illness and, and looking back from this perspective and, and, and being introspective about my life history, I've dealt with anxiety and symptoms of depression for pretty much forever. I was a very anxious kid and at a time where people didn't really look at kids that way. It was, oh, she's very shy or she's nervous. But um, I, I think looking back now, it, it was pretty clear it was a very severe anxiety And so on and off in my life, I've, I've dealt with things like that. And in college, I definitely had times where I was really low. I felt pretty lost and lonely. Uh, and in my second year, I was finally starting to feel like I got my feet under me. I was pretty comfortable in the lab. Uh, I had gotten through my classes. And then I did this thing that's called a qualifying exam where every department, school, etc. does it differently. Um, but basically, ours was that we had to write... Uh, a grant, we had to write this uh, fake grant that was based on a topic that we had nothing to do with. Uh, and we wrote it, no one else was allowed to read it, no one else was allowed to, you know, you couldn't talk about it openly mm -hmm. to anybody. So it was meant to be a, a true evaluation of are you a scientist? And <sighs> can you be a scientist? And I just barely failed that exam. I, I failed by one point out of like 40. Um, And, and the thing is, is that the, the repercussions from that were there was the side that was just like the logistical repercussions where I had to take another several months off where I had to isolate myself and rewrite this. But I think more importantly, that threw me all the way off of saying, you know, I, I thought my writing was pretty okay in general. And mm -hmm. like I had gotten um, the NSF GRFP, which is a, a pretty competitive fellowship uh, just the year before. And so that was sort of the thing that I, I held on to as, you know, I might not be the best scientist. I might not be the, like, I don't know anything about bioinformatics, whatever, but at least I, I have these sort of things that I can look at that I'm, that I'm okay at. And so I think that really pulled the last uh, string of, of self-assurance that I had left mm -hmm. in grad school uh, and looking around, it just seemed like everybody else was doing fine. Uh, even though half of my, uh, half of my class failed that year, I still felt like I, I was somehow the biggest failure. I ended up, I felt like, okay, maybe all this fear is just based on the fact that I haven't passed this. Uh, I'll get through it again. I mean, I don't think my mental or physical health has been any worse than it was when I redid that exam. 
I was completely alone in my house. I don't like there were times where I didn't leave the house for four days at a time. I wasn't okay. eating right, everything. Uh, but I eventually got through it and I passed that second time. And I just, I didn't feel any better. I, I still felt like, you know, in fact, it was worse because I felt like, oh, I should, I should feel accomplished. I should feel secure here. Uh, and instead I felt like, well, maybe they let me get off easy because they mm. don't want to have to fail somebody out and, uh, you know, whatever else. Uh, but I just couldn't get interested in anything. I didn't care about my lab work. I didn't want to spend time with friends. I, I just didn't want to do anything and, and nothing made me happy. And I felt like, you know, is, is this going to be my entire life of going through this roller coaster of crying really hard and then just feeling this like weight on my body? Is that what I was going to be facing? And I just didn't want to do that anymore. And so I, I got to a, a definitely the darkest place that I've ever, I've ever been. Uh, and I, I had to make a very conscious, very deliberate decision to get through the rest of that, the rest of that summer. That was, I guess, about three years back from now. And yeah, that was a, a big turning point for me. My, you know, I got through that period of depression and then I have worked really hard to maintain it. And about a year later, I, I found another passion, which was to kind of hopefully support other students while they were going through the same things. Excellent. And so what I'm understanding is, is that this experience kind of dug a hole, let's say, in, in the, how do I say, the foundation of what you were picturing yourself to be as a scientist that you couldn't fill on your own for a while. And mm -hmm. uh, so what did you, uh, you already mentioned uh, your therapist. What resources did you have at hand at the time? Uh, and I don't know, uh, I, I didn't ask you whether you're close for family or not close from family. How, how did you deal with that at the time? And how did you kind of pull yourself up to then you know, get to starting what you just said, helping others. And then how, how did that kind of snowball, how did you get that going to, to pick yourself back up and then now even finish and defend? I think I was sort of in the perfect storm of, of bad situations. So you look at the things <laughs> that support people's mental health. It's things like uh, having a routine schedule. It's uh, having very clear goals and metrics by which to meet them, mm -hmm. a clear understanding of expectations, family, friends, uh, loved ones, etc. And this was right around the time that my parents ended up doing my mom uh, was in uh, an expat uh, program for her job. So they were actually right. around the world. Um, very inaccessible. They didn't have any idea that this was going on. I, I really kept this secret because I didn't want them to worry. Uh, I had recently ended a, a long-term relationship with my romantic partner. Um, and so I was living on my own for the first time ever. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I, I ended up pushing away a lot of friends because one, I was really embarrassed by this whole situation. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to face it. I didn't want people asking questions. Mm. Um, And I kind of just wanted to burrow into a hole and, and try to just avoid the entire world. Mm -hmm. So I, I did become a, a fairly toxic person to be around. Um, and the ways that I kind of got myself out of this were uh, a couple things. So one, I did start telling my therapist more. I think uh, okay. it's, it's always a struggle to be completely honest. To share completely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um 
I mean, a big part of it is timing. So I think something that we don't talk about a lot is that the, the highest rates of suicide are actually in the summer for the Northern Hemisphere. A lot of people have the idea that the hardest times around the holidays, um, and that's actually not true. The, depending on the year that things are studied, it looks like the highest rates of suicide are sometime between May and August. There's a bunch of ideas of why that is. I, I am not the right person to speak on that, but um, it's certainly true for me that I have a very cyclical pattern of, of mood where coming up through spring can be very difficult. And I kind of end up in this frantic, but also depressed situation. And, and so a really big part of it was just getting through the months of May, June and July and getting back to a point where I could start logically thinking again without my own brain attacking my thoughts. Um, but the ways that I've, I've protected myself from that, and obviously there's been several more springs after that point, and, yeah. and we're there right now, is you know, maintaining that open communication with my therapist, really actively thinking about the people I spend time around. You know, uh, I think it's easy to surround ourselves with people who... <sighs> Uh, I'm trying to figure out the way to say this, but basically people who are going to take all of our attention freely. And mm -hmm. and that's really comforting when you don't want to take care of yourself. Okay. Um, okay. And so thinking about people who really support me, I'm able to be honest with uh, and who it's a, a mutual interest in, in being friends. Uh, and then, you know, just, Trying, I think another big piece is that I adopted a couple dogs in mm -hmm. at the start of my my third year or at the start of my fourth year. Uh, everyone said that was a terrible idea, and that was one of the few times that everyone was wrong. That <laughs> going back to that idea of, of taking care of myself, um, you know, if you have a pet, you don't have a choice of not getting up in the morning. You don't have a choice of staying in your house all day long, uh, and things like when you know, they have to eat twice a day. So I should probably eat at least twice a day, you know, and, and companionship. So, uh, those pieces that we tell people that sound so fluffy of like, have a support system or mm. get enough sleep or, you know, be introspective. Those are often the hardest, but they really are the pieces that matter. I was asking about family because for sure it's one that it's, it's another thing that when you're abroad doing a PhD or just in another state, If you uh, are able to keep an open uh, connection with your family, for sure, it's it's something that, that can help depending on people's relationships with their families, of course. Uh, but well, again, we're in the in, in the middle of the, the, the COVID pandemic. And uh, I think people uh, are, are more are talking more with their families than they have been in the past because of this strange uh, and, and stressful situation. Uh, I'm super grateful that you're sharing this uh, with us and, and with the listeners, because I believe and num the numbers show that a lot of PhD students out there are going through similar things. Uh, and be it be it panic attacks, anxiety, depression, uh, and and these are, in a way, they're insidious things. Like you were saying, you know, of all things, they even lead you to not want to go get the help that you need. It's it's really really uh, a big challenge for someone alone to deal with it. So, I would say, and I always try to say, if if you're somewhere maybe far from family but your, univers your university has resources, counseling, etc., and you feel that you need help and that you're not being able to deal with something, just 
use those services uh, and and as much as possible because you need to you need to take care of you first yeah and i would say also um you know i, I think even though I, I get a lot of help, I get a lot of support, I still have a hard time thinking of it as getting help. And so I've sort of started reframing it in my own mind of mm. whenever I want to be more efficient, whenever I want to be more effective, getting support makes you more of both of those things. So I think it's a little bit silly for us to, you know, I use a, a reference manager when I'm writing a paper because I don't want to type in every single reference and have to change it around. I don't see that as getting help. I see that as I am effectively using the tools that I have available. And I think that's a big piece is that, you know, in grad school, we are taught to seek out collaborators. We're taught to look up the best, newest information. Uh, and I think that this is a, a great way to do it. You know, not that the reason to get help should really be... Uh, <laughs> improving your work. But uh, I think that it can be a, a good way to get started, especially if you're not sure, do I really need this kind of help? Or, mm. or am I just whining? Um, mm -hmm. uh, probably, <laughs> if you're thinking, do I need help? You do. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, just to get started, I would say, think about it as, how can I be more effective? How can I get more out of my life? Uh, and, and those kind of tools are really, really great. Mm -hmm. An analogy that just came up uh, to my mind was a PhD is like a marathon and athletes go to the clinics to learn to jump farther, a little bit farther, to run a little bit more efficient. And they go to specialists to help them to do to do these things better and to, you know, go for that gold medal. And I think it, there's an equivalent there. And uh, it's a very, very long winded effort. It's normal to get uh, physically and maybe mentally tired. So, you know what? Go get a brain massage so you can wake up the next day and uh, and be a better you and and uh, and get uh, back on track for sure. For sure. I love that. <laughs> uh Susanna, we're reaching the half point, but you mentioned that one of the turning points and I think this is really really important. I really believe deeply that gi giving back uh to to your a community you came from and and helping others is a great way to grow. And you mentioned that a, a turning point of when you you kind of went over this bump of um, of being in a in a kind of a dark place was you said I decided to start helping other people. Uh, can you just talk about what that is? And so we kind of tease what's coming up in part two. Sure. Um, so it actually kind of came from the fact that I had been doing some science communication stuff with a local planetarium. I was able to get excited about my own science again because I, I did some hands-on stuff with kids. Uh, and then the start of my fourth year, I, I started to actually train other scientists to do these sort of workshops and things. And, and I realized that although I felt like I didn't have much to offer, I did have skills. I did have experiences that other people could learn from. And, and that made me feel really good. Uh, and during that winter and actually in January, February, some, some new literature came out that really opened up a new opportunity where I could take those really bad experiences that I had and, and hopefully help people in a way that I wish that I had been supported. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll maybe talk uh, a little bit more about how that kind of gelled into something, into a, into a project that you're working on today. But uh, I'm really thankful that, that, that of you sharing your story, and uh, I hope the, the listeners are 
enjoying the episode and taking notes because, uh, again, uh, I myself went abroad to study and you can be very alone. And if you can get tools from people who've gone through the same problems you're going through, it can be kind of a shortcut to not fall into the same pitfalls. So thank you. And, uh, and see you on part two. If you enjoy the insights shared on the show each week and would like to dig deeper into some of the subjects covered, you can now join the Papa PhD Postgraduate Career Exploration Group on Facebook. There, you will find like-minded listeners, but also a few of the past guests who will be taking part in the conversation. So, to start a conversation, just go to facebook.com forward slash PapaPhD and ask to join. And if the show has helped you in any way and you'd like to contribute, join the Papa PhD Patreon at patreon.com forward slash PapaPhD and become a monthly supporter. You will be helping me continue to interview interesting guests and to bring you stories that'll help you in your career journey. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Music